Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Hello and welcome to The Reading Life, your weekly look at the Louisiana literary scene. I'm Susan Larson. This week I'll be talking with historian Heather Cox Richardson, whose most recent book is Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. Richardson will be a guest at the New Orleans Book Festival at Tulane University coming up March 16th. If you're a fan of the writing of historian Heather Cox Richardson's newsletter, Letters from an American, you're one in a million. Actually, you're more like one in two million. Her newsletter, begun as a response to the Trump era in 2019, has closer to two million readers now. She is a professor of history at Boston College, specializing in American political and economic history, and the author of seven books, including the award-winning How the South Won the Civil War. Today, we're talking about that newsletter, as well as her most recent book, Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. Heather Cox Richardson will be a featured speaker at the New Orleans Book Festival at Tulane University, March 16th. Heather Cox Richardson, welcome to The Reading Life. It's such an honor to speak with you. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here. Now, if you would, take us back to that moment you sat down to write letters from an American and how you made the decision that that would be your response to the Trump impeachment era. Oh, you make it sound much more planned than it actually was. Well, that's um, even more interesting to me. <laughs> the, the, the way it began was simply that I had been writing about once a week on my Facebook page, which had about 22,000 followers because of my history books. And I hadn't written since July 18th, I remember, and this was in the summer of 2019, and it was September 15th, and I was supposed to go back to Boston, but I was painting my house. I was, was about to move, and I was painting the window trim, and I got stung by a yellow jacket, and I'm allergic to yellow jackets, and I did not have my EpiPen. That meant that I, I felt like I couldn't get in the car and drive unless I knew how badly I was going to react to it. So as I sat there at my table, I thought, well, you know, as long as I'm here, I might as well right back to the people that are starting to worry about me on Facebook. And that was just after the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, a Democrat from California, mm -hmm. had written a letter to the acting director of national intelligence to say that he knew that there had been a whistleblower that had come forward with information that it seemed probably came from a principal in the Trump administration and that he had not, the acting director, had not handed over as he had to by law. So I recognize that as the first time that uh, somebody had in the uh, legislative branch had explicitly accused somebody in the executive branch of breaking a law. And I mentioned that in this letter about here's where I think we are in the Trump administration. And the questions just poured in. And, you know, I'm a teacher. So mm -hmm. I, the next day I thought, well, I'm not going to crowd the airspace here. This is, uh, you know, I'm not going to answer all these questions right away. I'll wait till next week. And then more and more and more came in. So I thought, I'll just answer these tonight. And that was February 17th of 2000. 
2019, and I have written every night since. And you just kept at it. I mean, what was it like for you to see it grow and grow and grow? I remember that. That was so exciting. I mean, for as a reader, it was exciting to see. Uh, it took on a life of its own. It has always been reader-directed, and I think it's exciting how many people want to understand our country. I think it's extraordinary the community they have built. From my perspective, you know, it went from being, you know, I'd dash a few things off at night to now it's basically a full-time, more than full-time job every single day. And what that has meant is it's gone from, oh, I'm a history professor and a writer of American history who happens to answer some questions at night to... I'm keeping a chronicle of the United States in this crucial moment in its history. And I got to tell you, I feel like the luckiest person on earth. It's a ton of work, but I just am so incredibly honored to have this position. Well, you have the biggest classroom in the universe right now, it seems. That's right. You know, that's right. And the most interesting material. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the real problem now is I initially I just wrote about Trump and the impeachment uh, the first impeachment of 2019. And then, you know, increasingly, I talked about more stuff that was happening in the United States. But I remember writing to a friend and going, why isn't anybody doing this for the world? Because there's so many world stories and, you know, we need someone like that. And there didn't really seem to be somebody stepping into that role. And so to some degree, I've had to learn foreign affairs and I only do the American perspective on foreign affairs. I can't possibly do anything else. I'm not trained for it. But the sheer material I'm trying to put into Mm -hmm. my lens has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And I complain sometimes that I feel like I don't learn enough anymore. And I wrote to a friend last night and and she she sent me something she had sent me uh, four years ago. And she said, do you remember this? And I said, I remember not understanding it at the time. It was about Ukraine. Uh, And now I look at it and think how very much I have learned in the last four years. So again, luckiest woman on earth right here. Well, I feel like I'm lucky to be one of your students, too. (laughs) But I wonder if you have an ideal recipient of these letters in mind. You have a real sense of the people who are reading you, don't you? Yes, I have a very good sense of the people who are reading me, but they're not who my ideal reader is. You cannot sit down at a laptop and imagine that you're sending something out to more than a million people. Mm -hmm. It It is completely overwhelming. So I write to my college roommate and a couple of friends, a couple of close friends, and try to explain to them what's going on in the world. And they have a bunch of different perspectives. And there's a key element to that. One, I think it strips away the pretense of, I know something brilliant that I'm imparting to you, and Mm -hmm. turns it into a conversation among friends. But I think maybe more important even for a writer is that I presume that those readers, my ideal readers, wish me well. You know, they're not coming to hate me. And, you know, what that means is I am much more willing to put my heart on my sleeve. And yeah, I get blowback for that. I get, you know, there's certainly plenty of haters now who read me and I hear from them, believe me, in spades (laughs) every day. But I think that that enables me to have a much more authentic and personal approach to the letters than I would if I were a journalist writing in the Wall Street Journal, for example. Right, because notes and letters are specific literary forms. You know, it's very different from writing a book. Well, interestingly enough, when I was writing Democracy Awakening, it, it fascinated me that I sat in the exact same chair with the exact same laptop and the exact same computer screen and listened to the exact same music. 
And I sometimes even did it at the same time, but I could sit down and write those letters with no problem at all. Uh huh. And then the minute I switched to writing the book, I, I was paralyzed. I did the whole procrastinating. I cleaned my bathroom. <laughs> I did the laundry. And I would sit there and go, what is with this? Like two hours ago, I was writing the letter like do, 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 ding. And yeah. now I'm trying to write this book and I'm right back to being a first year, you know, assistant professor going, I don't remember where the comma goes. So I just thought that was a really interesting psychological difference. And then you migrated to Substack for a very pragmatic reason. Yes. They were the only people at the time who could mail out the numbers of readers I had. Mm -hmm. So people started early on, I was on Facebook, and people started early on begging me for a newsletter. And I remember going to my graduate students and going, what on earth is a newsletter? Because all I could think of were the mimeograph things we yeah, had as yeah. kids, remember those? And so they looked into it, they didn't know either. And uh, right about that time, Substack was just starting up, and they called me and said, you know, we have this this system, and I got to give them credit. I, I I treat them basically as a as a technology, mm -hmm. but I was with them, I think, for more than a year, and I don't quote me on that because I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I was there for a long time before I took money because I've never wanted this to be about money. I've always wanted it to be about sort of the country and principles. And finally, I was like, you know, they're providing all this support and all this stuff, and they're not getting a penny out of me. So that's when I started to take money so I could mm -hmm. both pay them and so I could have an assistant as well to start to manage the, you know, my end of it. Um, but, but also, but, you but that's had how the, I ended up there. You had that brilliant sense that if people paid for the newsletter, the trolls wouldn't pay for it. Yes. Well, you had to do that. By the time, by the time, like I say, I think by the time I was on Substack, I had more than a million followers on Facebook. It's all mm -hmm. a little fuzzy now. Um, and, and basically, I have a full-time moderator on Facebook zapping the trolls. And I just, I just, you, 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 I, at the time, I wasn't sure he was going to stay with me. And it's just, that's a full-time job. Wow. And, and Substack would weed that out by charging people. I feel like that was your moment where you said to yourself, you're going to need a bigger boat. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just It got bigger and bigger and bigger. So, well, but the interesting thing for me is that for me, it's the history and the ideas and the people and the country. Mm -hmm. And that really is the heart of it all. And then there's this whole like technology and people and always trying to stay one step ahead of the trolls and all that that's out there that to me is like I have to be I have to be poked to remember that part uh -huh. and that's a really funny thing to try and marry in my daily routine mm -hmm. it seems that your voice and your voice is so measured and smart and it's it was just what people needed to hear because it was the long the long perspective the answers we could find in history. Did you have any sense of um, creating a voice to meet the moment within no. you? You just no. I'm just I'm was... just who I am. <laughs> I mean, the the one thing that is uh, I think that I bring that is uh, that is perhaps unusual in this moment is that I am trained as a historian, not as a journalist. So we look at how and why societies change. That's just different. I'm not trying to bring you the 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 newest thing that happened today. 
although I, I do root a lot of my stories in what happens on a certain day. Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to do is highlight the pieces that seem to change something that's happening in our world. And that just means that I have a longer perspective. I can say, hey, you need to pay attention to this over here, but maybe this over here is not all that important for you to follow every single second. And, and in a world where we are constantly bombarded, it really, I think, might help to be able to say, you know, if I were writing a book in 150 years, this is for the moment I'd put in. The last mm -hmm. three weeks, you know, I, I, those wouldn't really even make it into a footnote. Well, how was it you, you determined the time was right for this book? You know, because so many things happen. The minute the, minute the book is out, other things are going to happen and it's Demo going to change. Democracy Awakening, you mean? Yeah. The only thing that I was trying to do was to gather in one place answers to the questions that people ask me every day. What's the Electoral College? Uh, how did the parties switch sides? What was the Southern strategy? You know, those questions yeah. that keep coming up in the news. And then I realized pretty quickly that what most people ask me is, how did we get here? What on earth is going on? And how do we get out? And so the book is arranged in three sections to answer those questions. And then it's it's 10 essays within each section. And what it what happened was I wrote the book and then I put it aside for four months. And when I came back to it, it told a different story than I thought I had written. Oh. And to me, it always felt as if my read, just like my readers do or like students do in a classroom, almost like the 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 chapters talked to each other when I wasn't paying any attention. And what they said was this was a larger story about how democracies die, how authoritarians rise from the, from you know the ashes of a democracy and crucially how we can use the same tools they do to get that society back and the answer to how that happens is the use of language and of false history so the book is dedicated to my readers because it really in so many ways is theirs at least as much as it is mine If you're just joining us, I'm talking with historian Heather Cox Richardson, whose most recent book is Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. How do you feel when people describe your work as quiet or calm? Uh, well, I have to say, first of all, I don't read a lot of reviews of my work. I always tend to move forward. I don't think of it as being quiet or calm. I think of it as being as deeply informed as I can possibly make it, because I believe that if you know the facts, you make good decisions about them. Mm -hmm. That being said, I think if you know me, you know when I am absolutely scathing and, and livid <laughs> and my my children pick it up. You know, many people don't realize that I'm the same person who wrote the response to being put on the professor watch list when it first appeared. And I wrote a response to that that went viral at the time. It would have been in around November in uh, 2000. I mean, around Thanksgiving in 2017. And I described Charlie Kirk, who was the person who at the time was inventing uh, Turning Points USA, as the youngsters in in charge of whatever. I don't remember what it was, but my children called me crying. They were laughing so hard. They were like, <laughs> could you have been meaner about this man? And I'm like, well, I thought it was pretty restrained. And they're like, no, coming from you, that was just like dripping with venom so the so maybe there's always more in know. it than people recognize yeah <laughs> maybe there's more in it than people recognize well you end this book with one of its presiding spirits you know abraham lincoln who is 
is such an inspiring figure still. It's like we're still learning things about him, still discovering things. When he talks about those who wanted the right to self-determination would always have to struggle against those who wanted power. And that's basically what you're looking for as you sort through history this time in this book, right? Well, I don't even think you have to look for it. To my mind, the ultimate end of humanity is the quest to determine our own fates. And I believe that democracy is the political system most likely to enable that to be the case for the most people. So when I think about American history, it's not, you know, for all that I write about leaders and and big themes, they're always people to me. They are people trying to create a government that permits others and themselves to determine their own fates. So it's not, again, it's not really a question of looking for it. You'll notice there's never passive voice in anything I write. Right. Occasionally in my letters, if one of my copy editors says, come on, we need to have, this has to be in passive. But I almost always write in active voice. I always try to make it clear that people are making choices. And sometimes they're making quite bad choices. And sometimes they're making quite good choices. And sometimes they're just trying to get through the day. Right. Um, and to me, that's less about what I'm looking for and more about what it really means to to live in a society where you're trying to build something better for the future. Well, to me, in this book, there is a lot of poetry in the writing. It's very clear yeah. and simple and lovely. There are parts of it that are really lovely. And I wanted you to read a little bit from the chapter that to me is the book's heart, What is America? Uh, I will read that. I would like the readers who know me will recognize that there is a little bit of a joke in this okay. in that I loathe Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> so I started this with Thomas Jefferson. Uh-huh. And again, a kind of a joke to my readers and um, and to people who know that I that I really have a thing about Thomas Jefferson. The fundamental story of America is the constant struggle of all Americans from all races, ethnicities, genders, and abilities to make the belief that we are all created equal and have a right to have a say in our democracy come true. We are always in the process of creating a more perfect union. It is enslaver Thomas Jefferson articulating those principles, and it is also Abraham Lincoln deciding to leave his lucrative law practice to stop the spread of human enslavement into the American West. But just as powerfully, it is ordinary Americans, like Harriet Beecher Stowe, turning her grief for her dead 18-month-old son into the story of why no mother's child should be sold away from her. Rose Herrera, suing her former enslaver for custody of her own children. Julia Ward Howe, demanding the right to vote so her abusive husband could not control her life any longer. Sitting Bull defending the right of the Lakota to practice their own new religion, even if he did not believe in it. Som Sung Bo telling the New York Sun that he was insulted by their request for money to build a pedestal for the Statue of Liberty when, three years before, the country had excluded people like him. Dr. Hector Garcia realizing that Mexican-Americans needed to be able to vote in order to protect themselves. Edward Roberts claiming the right to get an education despite his physical paralysis. Stormy Delarverly 
the drag king who was identified with the first punch at the Stonewall riot that jump-started the gay rights movement. Our history is former sharecropper Fannie Lou Hamer continuing to organize black Mississippi voters to have a say in our democracy, even after Mississippi police officers beat her nearly to death because, as she said, the only thing they could do was kill me. That's such a great portrait, a composite portrait. I found it very inspiring. So tell me how you keep going. I noticed that your newsletter went out at 12.52 this morning, and you must have been very tired by then. Well, that was a particularly late one because that was a very complicated story. I was right. I was trying to tell well, and it was not in my wheelhouse. But, you know, people do ask me that. And I will answer that, I think, in two ways. First of all, uh, I, I do feel like we are at a crucial moment in American history in which our very democracy is at stake. And there are so many people in our past, like Fannie Lou Hamer, but mm-hmm. also like the people who died at Gettysburg and the people who put their names at the bottom of the Declaration of Independence, who gave everything for this country. It's not that big a deal for me to not get as much sleep as I'd like. Mm. But the other answer to that, I think, when people ask me, I mean, again, it's been a long haul since September 15th of 2019, is how could I not? You know, when I think about what I'm doing and and making this record of this moment for the future, I always think about that graduate student in 150 years who looks back and says, gee, I'd really want to know what happened on February 27th, 2024. I wonder what Richardson says about it. Mm-hmm. That's not the day you want to give her, oh, I didn't feel like writing today. You know, so right. every day I try and put at least something down about what was the most important stuff that seemed to come up that day and how it echoed the past. You know, I guess maybe it's like being a runner or something. You might take easier days, but you really can't not do it. Well, there's such a responsibility in being a public historian. You must, I suppose. Is that you know, what I am, a public historian? I think so. I kind yeah. of think of myself as kind of like like Charlotte in the corner of the barn, right? Writing, <laughs> watching everything that's going on and writing. Well, Charlotte's endured a long time, so that's a good thing. That means well, that she, grad student will have something to read. I mean, she, she was a good friend and a writer, right? And yep. there are worse things in this world to be than a good friend and a writer. So true. So true. We've been talking with historian Heather Cox Richardson, who will be a featured speaker Saturday, March 16th at the New Orleans Book Festival at Tulane University. She'll appear in the Kendall Cram Auditorium at the Lavin Burnick Center for University Life from noon to 1245 on a panel on the founding document, Historical Perspectives on Modern Constitutional Challenges, with Jeffrey Rosen, moderated by Ken Burns. And again from 4 to 4.45 p.m. on a panel, Dialogues on Democracy, Historical Perspectives with Stephen Hahn, Wes Lowry, and moderated by Kurt Anderson. Heather, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Here's what's on tap in the literary life this week. Shannon Kelly Atwater presents a story time with her new storybook, 
five little termites. Saturday, March 2nd at 11 a.m. at Garden District Bookshop. Poets Chris Champagne, Caroline Rowe, and David Rowe read from their work at the Poetry Buffet, Saturday, March 2nd at 2 p.m. at an in-person reading at the Rosa Keller Library. MSNBC host Joanne Reed discusses her new book, Medgar and Murley, Medgar Evers and the Love Story That Awakened America, in conversation with Sharice Gibson, Saturday, March 2nd at 4 at Baldwin & Company. This is a ticketed event. Poets Peter Cooley, whose new book is Accounting for the Dark, and Carolyn Hembry, author of For Today, read from and sign their books Sunday, March 3rd from 2 to 3.30 at Octavia Books. David Armand interviews Damien Eccles of the West Memphis Three and his partner Lori Davis Wednesday, March 6th at 10 a.m. in the Southeastern Louisiana University's Pottle Auditorium. They will discuss the criminal justice system, but also their books, consisting of Damien's memoir, Life After Death, a collection of letters that Damien and Lori wrote called Yours for Eternity, a love story on death row. Maurice Carlos Ruffin discusses and signs The American Daughters, Thursday, March 7th at 6 at Octavia Books. Get ready for Festival Month in March. The New Orleans Book Festival at Tulane University opens March 14th with a session partnering with The Atlantic. It runs through March 16th at various locations at Tulane. The festival is free and open to the public, and attendees can register and find the complete schedule at bookfest.tulane.edu. Authors, illustrators, and panelists attending include Ken Auletta, Donna Brazil, Courtney Bryan, Liz Cheney, Ronan Farrow, Amy Guida, Gary Hoover, Mike Jones, Kate LaCour, Terry McMillan, Kimball Musk, Madeline Ostrander, Kadaja Queen, Hal Raines, Walter Ramsey, Heather Cox Richardson, Nicole Ritchie, Mona Lisa Saloy, Jim Shudo, David Shipley, Cleo Wade, Jessamyn Ward, and many others. Family Day as part of the festival will take place from 10 to 2, Saturday, March 16th, in the Fogelman Arena in the Devlin Fieldhouse. Then, coming up March 20th, the 38th annual Tennessee Williams and New Orleans Literary Festival gets underway and runs through March 24th at the Hotel Montleon. The famed shouting contest takes place earlier this year, March 17th at 2 at Jackson Square. Opening night, March 20th, features a night of burlesque. Check out TennesseeWilliams.net for the complete schedule. And don't forget Saints and Sinners, the LGBTQ literary festival that runs concurrently that weekend also at the Hotel Montleon. Check out sasfest.org. Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books, with major support from Rouse's Markets. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation, the Jefferson Parish Public Library, and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in The Reading Life do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The theme song for The Reading Life is by Matt Perrine and Sunflower City. The Reading Life is produced by George Ingmeyer and is a production of WWNO. You can listen to us anytime or subscribe to our podcast at WWNO.org. And you can email us at the Reading Life at WWNO.org.